Well, hi, thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, Pam, for your prayers. And um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. I'm really happy to be here tonight. Happy to talk about step three. I think it's a, a really important, crucial step. It's where we make this decision that um, one, that we're going to continue on and move to the steps, but that um, that we're willing to no longer be in charge, right? And, um, and so um, I'm going to start with um, in how it works on page 60. It says, A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And, you know, the question we're meant to ask ourselves is, is this your truth? Yes or no, right? Meaning, have you done a good job managing your life? Um, and, you know, what I found is that by the time people wind up in Overeaters Anonymous or any other 12-step program, they're getting pretty close to realizing that, no, they're really not doing a great job of managing their lives. And, you know, a lot of times, um, myself included, it took me a while because I would point out all the other areas of my life that I believed, I believed <laughs> that I was managing quite well, right? And that was uh, delusional, right? It was really, I was, I believed something that wasn't necessarily true. But my first indication that I wasn't working so well at the management of my life was I knew I had a problem with food and why was it that I could not manage to do anything about it, even when I knew specifically what I needed to do about it. Like I've known from a very young age, what foods were problematic for me, what foods I never could seem to eat quietly or in any you know healthy amount. And yet I kept on returning to it. Right. And so that's that was an indication that something was not managing so well in my life. But then further on, you know, it, it, it we certainly find that that's just that's just the very small part of it. It's actually the management of my life, of all areas of my life that I wasn't doing a great job at. Um, and what I found was my standards kept getting lower to match my circumstances. So it, you know, if I would have woken up one day after not having binged, right? And I woke up one day and suddenly found that I wasn't able to leave the house, right? Or that I couldn't get on the floor and that nothing in my closet fit or that I wasn't getting along with anybody. I was having a hard time. I was feeling isolated and alone. If I went from a great day to all of a sudden that being my reality, that would have been alarming. But what happens with this disease is it's a slow boil. And it was in little increments. So I would get away. You know, I think, especially with compulsive overeating, the you can look quite presentable. You can look like you're okay and, and really be a mess. And that, you know, and so it was like a slow unmanageability that I didn't even know that I couldn't manage my life, right? And then, okay, so B, that probably no 
how no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. So the question you ask is like, based on all the attempts you've made to manage and control your eating, are you beyond human aid? You know, has any person or any pay in way or any weight loss, you know, membership, club, gym membership, exercise regime, hypnosis, therapy, had any of those things been able to relieve not your weight, but your compulsion? Because some of those other things at different times in my life were actually able to control my weight, but never my compulsion, never the chatter in my brain. In fact, I remember being on many diets, many um, plans, you know, especially like the ones where I was losing weight rapidly. Um, I would be sitting in a room with people and I was seething. Like I was so uncomfortable. I was so angry. I was not experienced joy. I was not, you know, um, and the desire to eat was getting actually worse. Like I wasn't eating and all I could think about was eating. I was like, you know, they call it like hanging on by your fingernails. That's what it felt like for me. And no human power ever relieved me of that feeling like I was gripping by my fingernails, trying to hang on um, and see that God could and would if he were sought. You know, and so are you willing to believe? Yes or no, that's always the question. Are you willing to believe and are you willing to seek? Meaning, you know, are you willing to do all the things that are you're being asked um, in order to seek a relationship with God? Because that's what this program is about, you know? And by the time you get to the spot, we've already read, we agnostic. So you ought to be willing to believe at that point. Like, I believe that there's a reason why we agnostics comes before how it works because I have to have the conclusion that there's something else that's going to be doing the working, right? That it's not going to be more me muscling, you know, in order to do how it works, I have to know who's the work, right? Who's going to be doing the work. Um, I will be cooperating but it's not going to be me that's really doing the changing. Um, and so, you know, the willingness, willingness is made up, I'd say, you know, a hundred parts desperation. If you've got a lot of desperation, you're getting closer to willingness because then you need one other component. And that's like just a little bit of hope. So the combination of desperation mixed with a little bit of hope. And it only, by the way, it takes, most of us, it takes like a hundred parts desperation, right? Meaning we've had to exhaust all human powers. We've had to exhaust every other plan. We've had to try it on our own. I don't know why it seems that it takes a lot of us, a lot of pain and a lot of convincing, but it does. That drives me to desperation. But if I don't have hope, just a little bit of hope, I can't take any action at all. What, what actions to take, right? I'll feel just that there's no chance. And usually 
um, I come across people every now and then who say, yeah, I don't know that I have any hope. I don't think that this is gonna work. And I gently say then, like, then what are you doing here, right? Then why are you calling? Because there's got to be some little spark of hope, right? That's that thing, you know? And to me, that's an, that's like an indication of God's existence because it can't be snuffed. It's there. Like we feel it every time I tried something new, there was a little piece of hope inside me that was, that was hopeful it was going to work. And so anybody ought to be willing, really, if you've suffered enough and you're here making, making some sort of an attempt, you ought to be willing. Um, and so it says being convinced we're at step three, which is that we've decided to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understand him. And just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do, right? What do we do if we're going to turn it over? And so, you know, this part in the big book um, is written to demonstrate. The next part is going to demonstrate how I'm making things in my life harder for myself and for others because I'm trying to get things to be my way. Like the next part's all going to talk about trying to get it our way. And, you know, my intentions may be good. Um, in fact, I have to say, like, you know, when they start talking about selfishness and self-centeredness, um, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm like, I really want good stuff. It's not like I'm a mean person. I don't want like horrible things for the people around me. I want good for them, you know? So my intentions are really good. In fact, they're often the best intentions. You know, I want my kids to be successful. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That, should, that sounds pretty reasonable. It sounds lovely. Um, and I want my career to be successful. That sounds reasonable too. I want to do good work at my job. I want my students to learn. I want them to make good progress. I want to want to have enough money so that I can, you know, live comfortably. You know, I've got a mom that's aging and I want her to stay healthy and I want my husband to do well in his job and I want him to take good care of himself. I want him to eat right. And, you know, so most of the things that I want are good and they're worthy and no one's questioning their, their goodness or their worthiness. But my problem is, is that I believe that I know best how to make those good and worthy things happen. And what I found is that, um, I have a perspective, just a perspective. And I believe that my perspective, a perspective is a viewpoint. And I believe that my perspective is factual information that I somehow know absolutely certainly the real story, the whole picture, but I just have my perspective. And, you know, my, my other problem is that I exert my will so that all the good things that I want are, are going to come to fruition. And I act in ways, when I do that, I act in ways that create chaos and conflict. And that's what happens. We act in ways we want these things to happen. And so we start managing things, right? And, um, you know, and, and so here's what I found. Like, guess what? 
I'm not the only person who has a, a perspective. Like all those other people that I'm trying to make good things happen for, they have their own perspective and they have their own goals and their own views. And they too, like me, believe their perspective is fact. They believe that the angle that they're seeing it from is factual. And the real problem is, is that I think, remember, I'm not managing my own life very well. And now I want to take over the management of their lives, right? And, you know, especially um, when they start talking about the arrangements on the stage, we're going to kind of drill into that in a moment. But, you know, most of the people in my, in my world, most of the people in all of our worlds who um, have different opinions and have different perspectives, it's not because they're trying to mess with us. That is not what it is. Most of the people who who like feel attached to their perspective. It's not that they want to screw around with me. It's not that they want to like do anything to me. They just want their way too. They just want their way too, right? Um, and I'd say like, it usually helps me to say, they're not doing it to me. They're just doing it, right? Like, but my self-centeredness, you know, part of our self-centeredness is we take everything personally so that whatever other people are doing is an attack on me it's a personal affront to me right um and that's real self-centeredness like just because you know i heard like a really good example like you walk in a room and someone has a sour look on their face and right away you're like they don't like me they don't like right away and like i know nothing about what they're thinking or what happened to them before, or even if, even if I am a thought in their brain, right? But I immediately think that it must have something to do with me. I make myself very, very important. Um, you know, and so we're gonna look at the bottom of page 60. And I really find it very helpful to read the bottom, um, starting, you know, starting with the first requirement. And I like to put it into the first person. You know, um, it's a common assignment that people have and they read it all the way through, through the third step prayer. And if you read it with the eye, it sounds very different. It has a very different impact. Um, so I'm going to read it that way. Um, and it says the first requirement for step three is that I be convinced that my life run on self-love and hardly be a success. On that basis, I am almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. I try to live by self-propulsion. I'm like the actor who wants to run the whole show. I am forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my own way. If my arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as I wished, the show would be great. Now, remember, those people also have their own wishes, right? They want everybody to do it as they wish, but I want everybody to do it the way I wished. And then everybody, if they did it my way, I believe that everybody, including myself, would be pleased. Like somehow I know the outcome. I'm like, uh, I think of myself almost, you know, in those moments, it's called playing God. We think about ourselves that somehow we know best, I know best, 
for everybody. Like I can see the future. Life would be wonderful, right? And trying to make these arrangements, I may sometimes be quite virtuous. I may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. Okay, I put next to that manipulative because all those things that I'm doing, they're with the agreement that I get what I want in return. By the way, it's the agreement that I don't let anyone else know about. It's like a secret secret agreement that they make. I'll be nice to you. I'll be virtuous. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be considerate. I'll be really patient. I'll even like be so self-sacrificing, but not really self-sacrificing because you better give me what I want, right? You better do the way I want it. And I won't even tell you in advance, you know, but on the other hand, I might be mean. I might be egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, I'm more likely to have very traits. So we got to kind of go back and forth. And what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. I begin to think that life doesn't treat me right. I decide to exert myself more. I become on the next occasion still more demanding and gracious. As the case may be, still the play does not suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat at fault, I'm sure that other people are more to blame. I become angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is my basic trouble? Am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Am I not a victim of the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well? So I've got this delusion that if I yank (laughs) my satisfaction and happiness from the clutching hands of other people and manage well, I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna feel good. Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things I want? Like, don't they get it? Don't they understand I want this? And do not my actions make each of them wish to retaliate? snatching all they can to get out of the show. Remember, while I'm doing this, they have their own perspective and they want that to come to fruition too. So they're trying to snatch it right out of my hands. And am I not, even in my best moments, a producer of confusion and harmony? And I think it's such a great visual. Like I try to think about this. um, I envision myself on this stage right now, like I'm on this stage. So you try to picture yourself on the stage and you've got lines to read right? Your your handed lines that you're supposed to read because you're just a player, right? You're just, just another player on the stage. But instead of reading, you know, my own damn lines, here's what I'm doing. I'm running behind the stage. I'm running behind the curtain and I'm messing with the lights and I'm trying to change the scenery. And I keep telling everybody else on the stage where to stand and what to say and how to say their lines and which expressions they should use. And, 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 you know, I think about my daughter, what did I do with her? I gave her like the costume change all the time. I would always tell her what to wear and to change her clothes, or I'd make a sour face if I didn't like what she was wearing. I think about being on that stage, telling people mid show to change their clothes. Right. (laughs) Um, And while I'm doing that, I'm not even, 
doing, I'm forgetting my part. I'm not even saying my lines. I'm forgetting when to come in queue. And I'm bumping into everybody else on the stage, right? And so what happens is that even if my idea was amazing, even if I had the best idea for how this show ought to be run, I'm annoying everybody. Everybody's getting pissed off around me because nobody is enjoying being commanded around the stage. And they're noticing that I'm not doing a very good job with my part either, right? And that's becoming evident to all of them. Not what I want, but how lousy a job I'm doing. And, you know, and now they don't want to do it my way, even if they think my way is good, because I'm annoying them, right? And people dig in their heels and they're like, well, I'm not going to do it the way she wants after all. You know, and what do I do? I do what I've always done. I get nicer and nicer and nicer. Basically manipulative. I get like sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And then when that doesn't work, I get quiet and I get pouty. I get manipulative. Right? You know, I won't say a word, but they know it. Everybody knows it by my face. And then when that doesn't work, I get, I say I get on my high horse, you know, I get self-righteous, I get indignant, and um, I use my ability for me. I string some words together. I'm fairly decent at putting my ideas together in words. And I use my words to try to get people to do what I want. I try to spin it so that it sounds right. And if that doesn't work, then I get mean. Then I get really mean. And by that point, I've lost it. I am like beside myself because in my mind, I'm like, I've been, I've been so nice to you. I've done everything you want. I've done everything to make everything good for you, right? They had no idea that they were agreeing to that contract when I was being nice to them. So it almost, for my family and the people in my life, it almost comes out of like nowhere that I suddenly lose it on them. They had no idea that I was so worked up. Um, and that goes on to say, I'm self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. I'm like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. You know, and I think about this retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine, complaining, complaining, complaining. I've been like that. You know, here I am. I've got a safe home. I've got, there's plenty of food to eat in my house. We're not going without. I got a warm bed. I, I, have the luxury of many freedoms. I got running water, you know, and basically, you know, if I ask people to raise their hand, if they've got indoor plumbing, most of our hands go up, right? So we can think we are like the retired businessmen rolling in the Florida sunshine. Life's not as difficult as we think it is, right? But I'm complaining. <laughs> I am like not very happy. Lack of gratitude, I would say, you know? If I'm complaining, um, you know, in the Florida sunshine, I certainly don't have any gratitude. Um, and, you know, 
I could be like the politician, you know, complaining um, about the rest of the world. If the rest of the world would only do what I would say, only the rest of the world would get on board with me, everything would be perfect. And, you know, um, for those of you who have had like political arguments with people that you love, you know that perspective is perspective. And everybody has a perspective that they believe is factual, right? Everybody. So those politicians that are sure that all would be utopia if the rest of the world behaves, may have a perspective that's not yours, right? The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him. So you're out there not doing very good things, but you're looking at what the rest of the world isn't doing good for you, right? And that's what I think about that outlaw safecracker. Everyone else is at fault, everybody else, right? I might not behave, be behaving so appropriately, but I'll be focused in on everybody else's flaws and shortcomings. Um, and to me, that's just, that's called hypocrisy, being a hypocrite, right? Um, and I've had different standards for other people than I've had for myself, you know? Um, and the compulsive eater, right? Alcoholic, food addict, who's lost all and is locked up. Whatever my protestations, am I not concerned with myself, my resentments, and my self-pity? Selfishness, self-centeredness, that I think is the root of my troubles. So, you know, the roots, I love the, the, the visuals that we're giving here, you know, first the actor on the stage, and now we're going to talk about these roots, right? And you know, the roots of a plant, the roots of something are the very things that keep us fixed in place, that keep us, you know, in a spot, supported. Roots are in charge of keep giving us structure, support, and taking in nourishment and delivering it, right? Taking in and then delivering it. And so, if my roots are all in me, right? They're all, the, my roots are selfish, self-centered. And the only thing that I'm pulling in is what I think is gonna suit my needs. Only thing that's gonna, I'm pulling in are my needs and my wishes. I am cut off from living an other-centered existence. I am like, taking in all data through the filter of how it is going to best suit me. And something that has selfish roots does not bear loving fruit. It just can't. The fruit that it's going to bear is going to bear fruit that comes from that nourishment, right? Selfish nourishment. So my troubles, I think, are basically of my own making. They arise out of myself. And I am an extreme example of self-will run riot. My self-will is running a riot, making things crazy in my life. You know, and for me, all I had to do was look at my weight. My weight was an indicator. My eating was an indicator of what it looks like to be self-will run riot. Above all, everything, I, as a compulsive eater, food addict, must be rid of this selfishness. 
I must or it will kill me. God makes that possible and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. I had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but I could not live up to them even though I would have liked to. Neither could I reduce my self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on my own power. I have to have God's help. This is the how and why of it. First of all, I have to quit playing God. It didn't work. So what does it mean to be playing God? Right? What is that? Um, is that different than just going about like normal people, right? When playing God means to have a huge effect on or great power over someone's life, their livelihood, their health, and their happiness. So basically when I'm that stage director running back there, telling everybody how to perform, what to do, right? Pulling in selfishness through my, through my roots. I'm playing God, right? I am playing God. I'm trying to exert control over other people's lives. And, you know, if someone plays God, they behave as if they have the right, they have the right to make those decisions for other people. And so, you know, and almost the first part of the definition to me almost sounds normal, although somewhat power hungry behavior. It sounds like, like you're kind of take charge and get it all together kind of person. And many people go through their lives either playing God or attempting to in their, you know, in their own worlds. And outside, they call this self-reliance or self-will. And outside of being, you know, an addict, um, it's celebrated. It's celebrated and it's encouraged. It's like this idea of doing it on your own. It sounds so wonderful. We hear about these self-made millionaires, these people who like on their own power, they're, you know, they just pulled it all together. Um, they can do anything kind of people. And, you know, um, this notion of doing it my way, like I do it my way, um, it's romanticized. And some of us get here, you know, like wearing it like a badge of honor. Like I do things my way, I do it my way. And, um, you know, there's even a song, right? About who did it my way. Um, one of my favorite AA speakers, Sandy Beach, he says, um, he talks about it. And I think it's such a good podcast that he does on this. And he says, um, you know, he talks about people saying that this is an admirable quality. And he's like, yeah, you know, I might be a mess. Oh, I might be a big mess, but I do it my way, right? Like, you know, I'm a great big mess. Everything's falling apart, but like, I do it my way. And, you know, he said, like, when you kill yourself, what's going to be the prize? Like, are they going to put that on your on your headstone? You know, I did it my way. Right. Um, and so normal people like which we're not remember, because that was our very first kind of understanding. And step one, we admitted Right? that we're not like other people and that that idea had to be smashed, right? 
So normal people can live by self-sufficiency. And even for them, we don't always see great results. Like it, it doesn't always go so well, those, those self-made people. They often have um, the illusion that it looks great, but many of them, it's not so great underneath the surface. Otherwise, we wouldn't see all these wonderfully successful stars and, you know, excellently, wildly business successful people in the rooms of 12 steps, right? So it might not be so great for them after all. Um, okay, getting back to the text, it says, next, I will decide that hereafter in this drama of life, God is going to be my director. So I'm not on that stage anymore, behind the stage, telling people what to do or sitting in the front, you know, in the front of my director's chair, telling people what to do. Mm -mm. Now God's going to be the director. He is the principal. I am his agent. He is the father and I am his child. And what that means for me is I fire myself. We fire ourselves. We're fired not the boss anymore. You're not the director and you're not the boss. Not when you take step three, it's not gonna be your way anymore. And for those of you, you know, um, who are ever owned a dog, this is, the, this is always the example I give. If you're a dog lover or if you've ever owned a dog, um, I've learned a lot about step three by having dogs. Um, and, you know, the most difficult dog one could have is the dog that doesn't know its position. The dog that, a domesticated dog who thinks that it's the alpha, who thinks it's in charge of others in the house. And, you know, my experience is I had a dog who thought he was the alpha and um, it's, you know, the dog that thinks it's the head of the pack, it's the boss. And, you know, in nature, the alpha's job is to do the thinking for the pack. It's the smart one of the pack. It might not even be the biggest one. It might not even be the strongest one, but it's the smartest one in the pack. And um, it's responsible for keeping all the lower dogs safe. It makes all the decisions. And the problem is that a domesticated dog living with people is not the smartest in the pack, does not have the same brain capacity. And so what happens is that when you think that you're the boss, and it's too big a responsibility for you, you're really difficult to live with because you're frightened and you're aggressive. Sound familiar? Sound like what it might be like to think that you're the boss? It's too big a job for us, so we become sometimes aggressive and frightened. Um, and we're not easy to get along with. You know, the dog that I had that was like that, um, he ran around biting people all the time. He was always snipping at people, always biting at people and growling. And, you know, he loved me. He would protect me. He'd come because he thought he was the boss of me too. So when people would like come and like approach me too quickly, he'd bite him, right? Um, and then when I went away, I traveled for a bit. The dog almost chewed his tail off. He literally like almost lost his tail. Um, so that he had to wind up with one of those big cones, right? And I think about for myself, how am I like that dog? Well, when I'm the boss, I ate myself up to 300 pounds. That's pretty close to biting off your tail, right? That's like almost destroying yourself. I ate until my mouth bled. To me, it's pretty similar to my dog that chewed his tail to lip bled. And did I need a big cone around my head? 
pretty much I had to put myself in this sort of hospitalization kind of idea where I put a lot of parameters around me, where I could go and where I could be and what I had to do so that I could focus in on getting healed and getting well. And part of that for me was recognizing I will never be the head of the pack. Too big a responsibility for someone like me. In fact, the dogs that are the happiest are the ones that they're no, that know they're taken care of, safe and protective, right? They're very happy to not be the principal, but to be the agent, to not be the employer, but to be the employee, right? To not be the father, but to be the child, right? Um, so step three means that I'm okay with recognizing that I'm not the head of the pack and I'm just one of the pack and I don't want to be in charge anymore. And as a result, I can let God be God and I can be Melissa, right? And I stop nagging. I stop micromanaging, I stop fighting, I stop arguing, and I also stopped chewing my tail off, right? I stopped eating in a way that got me up to 300 pounds. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arc through which I will pass to freedom. So how do I pass through freedom? By letting go of thinking that I'm the head of the pack. That's, that's, that's how I start getting free. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer being all powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. So there's a, there's a condition, right? God is going to give me what I need. Doesn't say what I want. Right? Remember, he's the employer. He's the father. I'm the child. I only have a human perspective. So just because it's what I want, it might not be in the best interest of me and all the rest of the players. Right? But I have an employer who sees the whole picture and he's going to give me what I need if I stay close to him. Right? Meaning, I stay close to God. Meaning, I seek God. I look to have a relationship with God. And I perform his work well. Well, what does that mean? I don't know what that work is yet. Right? But we can start finding out. And generally, what I say is that I know what he doesn't want me to be working on. That's pretty clear. Right? If I'm stuck between two choices. And one is to benefit other people and be a little bit inconvenient, perhaps uncomfortable for me. More than likely, um, to have some self-sacrifice and move in the direction of doing what's better for other people. It's just my truth that that, that sort of seems like when stuck between two things, it's to err on the side of love and service. It's usually what God's will is. Um, you know, and so on such a footing, on that position where I am sure that God is going to give me what I need, I'm not as interested in my little plans and designs because I know my needs are going to be met. So my plans and designs, which led me to chewing off my tail, 
I don't really want them so much anymore. I start losing interest in them. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. More and more, I wanna be able to participate with other people. And what happens there on that footing, I get new power flow in. I love this because people say, you know, you don't necessarily feel God's power until step 12, having had a spiritual waking. And that's not true. We start feeling God's power in step two. And we certainly feel it in step three. Here we get peace of mind as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we will be born. And so I don't have to be scared anymore. Like what a huge relief, because I'm not the alpha trying to keep everybody safe and in their positions. I have someone, something great, powerful, loving, who's handling all the big stuff. All I need to do is stay close to God and do what I think you would have me do. And what I find is that the beautiful truth is that God doesn't just make his will abundantly clear. He does make his will clear. He also gives me the strength, the wisdom, and the ability to live in agreement with his will. You know, in step one, I found that I had ideas and philosophies and morals, but I couldn't live in agreement with them. And in step three, when I become conscious of God's presence, I start to become able to live in agreement with God's will for me because he gives me that power. He starts giving me more power to make better choices, to do better things. You know, um, I've had a lot of ways that I wanted my script to be. Like all of us, I had a plan, I had a script, and I, for many years, believed that God might not exist because the script that I was so sure was perfect, he wasn't following, right? I had it backwards. I thought I was the principal and he was my agent. I thought I was the employer. And he was the employee. I thought I was the father and he was the child. Had it exactly wrong. And when the order changed, right? When I quit playing God, that's what they mean. Quit playing God. It became abundantly clear God's existence. It became ever more clear. And I felt power flow in. And what I found is that my perspective was a tiny, little, finite perspective because I am a small speck <laughs> in this whole world, right? In this universe. And so I saw this much, you know, they say like I looked through the keyhole of the door and that's the only perspective I got. And I believed that I knew the whole picture. Right. And when I recognized that I did not have the whole picture, but God saw what was behind the door, I was able to lean in 
And what has happened for me is that some of the things that I was so sure had to happen, mostly in my kids' lives, mostly in my kids' lives, have totally been wrong. Like 100% been wrong. And yet my desires were lovely. My heart meant well, but I'm not God. And I had no business playing God, right? And what I've also found is that like so many other people, you know, what we're promised is that what comes when we put ourselves in God's hands is infinitely better than anything I could have planned. Um, and I would say having this disease is just the first example. I thought this was the worst thing in the world that could happen. And it has actually turned out to be one of the most beautiful gifts that I could have been given because it's given me a purpose. And every life feels full and complete when you feel like you have an idea of what your purpose is, right? And so this thing that I thought was the worst thing in the world has actually turned out to be a blessing, right? And um, with that, I'll pass. <laughs>